Hello, everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I want to thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Fort. I'm excited to have Corey Price and Steve Bailey, our Director of Asset Management and our Director of Property Management and Construction with me today. We are gonna talk about how Fort thinks about due diligence, how we think about onboarding, and ultimately execution in the first year after we buy an asset. Both of these guys are so influential in this whole process. And I think how we do it is what separates us from a lot of our competition. It's what allows us to get through deals quick and have a game plan that we start executing on immediately. And so today we're gonna dive into what their roles are and how they think about their roles within each of those due diligence, onboarding and execution. And we'll just talk about some of the nuances, some of the mistakes we've made and what we've improved on and kind of how we make the sausage, so to speak. So Corey, Steve, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, glad to be here. Steve, let's just start with you, just kind of a high level overview of what property management and construction kind of means to you and your role. Yeah, absolutely. So property management and my role and just in general is essentially taking care of that asset and ensuring its success on a day-to-day basis. We're working with vendors and contracts, and we are working closely with the customers, the tenant base, collecting rent, running financial reporting packages, and and everything in between. So it's never a dull moment. Yeah. It's uh, <laughs> Each day is different, but it's great. Yep. Corey, what is the asset management kind of like in your world? Yeah, great question. And I, I feel like a lot of people in commercial or that aren't in commercial real estate have no idea what asset management is, so it's always fun to explain. The best way I explain it is asset managers are kind of like the quarterback. When we acquire a new asset, we've underwritten a business plan to go and execute. Once the acquisitions team hands that deal off to asset management, it's the asset manager's job to execute that business plan. Now, what that means, it's working with our property management group, which Steve, or third party in some instances. It's working with our leasing teams, reviewing leases, making sure we're hitting our underwriting, executing our year one CapEx plan, working with our our director of development and Steve and his teams and contractors, really just coordinating all of these groups and ensuring that our business plan is executed. And as things change. We exceed original underwriting or something underperforms. Um, It's also asset manager's job to adjust that business plan, which is something we do well at Fort. We underwrite deals quarterly or re-underwrite deals quarterly based on performance. We sign a great lease that really changes, changes our projections. You know, we're the ones that go in there from a financial view and say, hey, we're going to refinance this earlier. Hey, maybe it's, it would be good to exit this asset a year sooner. So, financial analysis and kind of redoing the business plan if necessary, and then coordinating all those teams to make sure things are getting executed. Love it. So as we kind of think about due diligence, so we've just gotten a property under contract, or let's just maybe even start with, we've come out of investment committee, we've submitted an LOI, the LOI has been approved, and we're starting to move to like a PSA, because I know that we get started on things really quickly. So as soon as the team kind of comes to, we'll go to both of y'all, but says, hey, this is happening. What happens in your world? And the conversation we'll have over the next couple minutes is what happens from we're buying this asset to the day that we actually close. And we'll just, let's take a typical value add multi-tenant industrial deal. Steve, what happens in your world? Yeah, so as soon as I've identified that LOI has been signed, I will start to engage our engineering and inspection firms, getting proposals together for a phase one environmental and actual inspection report referred to as a PCA. And then we will oftentimes go ahead and get a survey done as well, just depending on the deal or a zoning report. And then I basically build that folder in our system for the property management team so we can identify, once we get those reports back, we'll be able to identify so many valuable things about the building 
And then on the accounting side, we start setting up bank accounts and things like that, getting it teed up to when we do sign that PSA, we're rocking and rolling. And as you're collecting some of that information, obviously we've made assumptions when underwriting and doing the deal that, you know, the inspection should look like this when it's done. If something's not right or you catch something, what do you do with that information? Do you go to asset management acquisitions? Like how do, how do we continuously kind of keep leveling up and understanding the asset as we're getting data in? Yeah, great question. So we have multiple huddles throughout the the deal process. We'll have a preliminary huddle right when we've signed the PSA. And then once I get the reports back and able to review them, any red flags, any things that, that, that jump out, we'll have another huddle and I'll kind of identify what gives me some heartburn based on the report and then take a look at, well, what are our options here? What, what can we do? The inspector is stating that X is, is an issue that maybe we weren't aware of. So yep. oftentimes maybe it's going back to the seller. Maybe it's getting a second opinion. And then we decide as a team in that room what next steps are. And maybe this is, a, y- y'all feel free to both chime in. When, we, when we're underwriting, we underwrite a CapEx plan. Sometimes that's very little. Sometimes it's a lot. And we do our best in underwriting to kind of give a, a number. But obviously, until we've bid it out and really understand it, we can't dial it in. So how do you all think about in due diligence taking the projected budget for CapEx and then building a budget during that period that we can start to rely on? So once we start receiving due diligence materials from the seller, um, the asset management team starts coming through utility bills, you know, financial historicals, taxes, just really everything, and fine-tuning our underwriting, updating the Argus, updating our, our Excel model, just making sure that, that our numbers uh, were correct to begin with. And then we have a general idea going in what our CapEx plan will be, just as you just hit on. But in the due diligence process, we go out there with the team, we do tenant interviews, um, which helps us adjust. Like, oh, mate, this person's not renewing, or mm-hmm. this person's definitely going to renew. Or we walk a vacancy that you know we thought we'd spend a hundred thousand dollars on. Steve and I walk it. We get the report back, and it's like, oh, this thing's in bad shape. So it's going to cost one hundred fifty thousand dollars, yep. something like that. So, and then we're constantly having those huddles like that. So it's just reviewing the information, actually getting on site, talking to tenants, seeing the property, getting professional reports back. And literally just constant updating and fine-tuning. And then just a continuation of that, are there other things that you're doing during due diligence that falls just in asset management's kind of team? Or do you just kind of go over all of it in that answer? There's a couple other things. So we do, like I mentioned earlier, we we do quarterly underwriting updates for deal performance. So we uh, transition from our underwriting model to kind of our asset management model, if you will, and get that teed up. We produce our quarterly reporting out of it, have uh, refi scenarios built in, several other things. So just more house cleaning things and asset management. But again, just kind of coordinating with all those groups. And then what we'll do is once everything's fine-tuned and the CapEx budget is fine-tuned, we'll also work with the finance team, work with the lender, say, hey, this is approved. This is what we're doing in year one. Sometimes there's lender requirements that we'll go back with Steve and like, oh, hey, we're going to have to uh, stripe the parking lot or something, yep. lender requirements. So it's basically just making sure that the ball's moving forward with all groups and that all of our numbers and projections are tight. And then maybe a little more on due diligence. How do y'all, and we've kind of talked about it, but as it relates to asset management and property management construction, how do y'all work together during due diligence? Like what are the things that y'all are in charge of being on the same page for? I think the biggest thing is the, the CapEx plan, obviously, but uh, you know, what are our vacancy plans if there are vacancies? What do the budgets look like? What do we, what do we want to do to these vacancies, depending on the asset type, obviously, and, and, the, and the customer mix? And then also working directly with asset management on maybe we underwrote X on the CapEx plan. And after visiting it a couple of times and taking a look at it, maybe going, hey, you know, maybe we don't, we don't really need to do this year one, you know, maybe be able to bump this out to year two or year three yep. and kind of come to a consensus on that. Cool. And then uh, just to add to that, working directly with property management um, outside of the construction aspect, you know, Steve identifies who the property manager is going to be. So again, we're getting them on the tenant interviews, which is great that we have property management in-house. We can get involved at very, very early stages, getting them tenant contact info, just 
really making it a smooth process so yeah. that our our customers, our tenants, really don't miss a beat. Right. Um, if anything, they see a better quality of service. Right. And not some lapse where oh well, I don't know where to send my rent check. Yeah. Or something like that. And I think one of the things that we are most proud of in 2021 is that we did launch our own property management business. We did bring it in-house. And so this is kind of a theme of things I'll ask throughout the conversation, but how are things different? And we think, one, it's a great benefit because we have immediate access to our customers, our tenants. We have better data. We have better communication in the office. We're constantly kind of improving and figuring things out. But how is it different in due diligence if you don't own your own in-house property management? What are you doing? Like, what were we doing differently? And what are the advantages that we now have that all things are under one roof? Two major things stick out to me. Obviously, there's there's a ton of benefits, but the two biggest, one, I just said, you can get the PM team involved immediately. Okay, so they're up to speed. They know what's going on on the deal. They know your business plan. I can get them our underwriting model and start building out our budgets and get that input into Yardy, which is a system we use. So that's a huge benefit. Second is accountability. And I'm not saying that other third-party groups aren't accountable. I've worked with tons all over the country. They're phenomenal. But it's it's changing it from a, a client relationship where something may get sugar-coated or you know, they may try to solve a problem themselves. And then a month later, it comes back. It's like, oh, we need to get ownership involved, something like that. There's just a lot more transparency and accountability when it's in-house. Yep. And, and we get we get a little bit of a head start on the property management side. Obviously, being in-house, going ahead and start bidding out those service contracts and really getting a jump start on that. So ideally, the day of close and fund, service contracts are already in place. All of the customers are being communicated with. So like Corey said, it's very seamless. Yep. And then to kind of wrap up DD, just a little bit more on what we're doing on each side of things as it relates to kind of our due diligence checklists. And and we've talked about it, but for in like asset management, what are the things that that you have got to get checked off? Things like these were our rent projections, this is what it actually is. You said tenant interviews. You find out a lot when you start talking to tenants. But what are the things that you must feel secure in before you come to the table the day we're going hard on money saying, like, we're good to, to move forward? Yeah, there's a laundry list of items. And we do, we've done a really good job of getting these items put into our PSA. For anyone listening out there, I would highly recommend making that list a little more detailed. Yeah. Um, there's always kind of your blanket, like, last three years financials, last three years of taxes, but get really detailed. Make sure you get your, you know, your Camrex, identify, make sure you have every single lease or lease addendum. Right now, um, when you're buying a property, you need to watch out for any kind of COVID amendments. Just very, very thorough and have a full understanding of your tenant base. And then dig deep into the financials. When you start seeing, we just, we just recently acquired a building where the past two years they had spent $60,000 on plumbing. So, you know, what is that? And most sellers, you know, they're willing to open up their property manager and, and just have a conversation, but really use that DD time to dig in and have a full understanding of the property. And that's one thing we do really well here at Fort is asset management and property management are involved at a very, very early stage. I mean, pre-LOI stage, we yep. know what we're going into, where a lot of groups, you know, acquisition closes the deal. And it's like, here you go, asset manager, figure it out. Yeah. So everybody's involved. Everybody's getting buy-in from mm -hmm. an early on. You mentioned leases and reviewing leases can be a pain in the ass, but it's essential. And we've bought deals where we have 30 or 40 leases. Not all leases are created equal. Again, it's not the most exciting part of the job, but could you just speak a little bit more to like how critical it is to review each lease and maybe have there been, has there been an instance over the last year where, you know, 95% of leases were great and then one was like totally different? Yeah, I would say you need to be super thorough for a, a several reasons, especially when you're in our business and, and, you know, we buy these multi-tenant buildings and part of our value add is... You know, a lot of tenants are on gross for modified gross leases. So we want to get them to triple nets as soon as possible. However, 
you may have some tenants that have base years and in your underwriting, like I said, you have to go back through and you may not have a base year for them. So you have, you know, your recoveries at full, but you may not get anything back from that tenant or yeah. maybe a couple thousand bucks. Right. So, and that really hits your bottom line. That really hits your revenue and your recoveries. So having a full understanding of that also helping with property management, like, Hey, this tenant has a base year, yep. you know, here's last year's recs or whatever. So when we start doing reconciliations and operating the property, it's a lot smoother. So, um, then you got to watch out for things. It can be a deal killer. Um, I mean, early termination clauses. We knew about this one, but we have a property in Arlington, 63,000 square foot tenant, big tenant, especially for our portfolio at early termination option. So we identified that, knew it, adjusted our underwriting for that tenant to roll and then collect their termination fee. But we were well prepared and you just have to be very, very thorough because every lease, as you said, is different and has um, different caveats and, and little things like that. So yep. there also any- make sure there's <laughs> also make sure there's no rofer. And if there is one, make sure that that tenant has said they don't want to buy the building. <laughs> <laughs> Steve, is there anything else kind of on your end, whether it's property management or construction, besides the obvious that, that we check off during due diligence? No, I, I would say we covered most of it. I think I think there's a lot of admin work that goes into it that some people may not really understand or, or realize, you know, getting all of those, let's say there's 40 tenants, getting all of those tenants into our accounting software system, getting all of those leases uploaded, and then getting them into our internal customer management system. It is, when we're acquiring a building, it's one of the first things I ask is, how many customers are we getting? Yeah. And at 40, 50, it's like, okay, let's let's go ahead and get started on this because it's it's a ton of work. Yep. And by the end of tenant interviews, are we always interviewing every tenant or the big ones or it's kind of depends on the property? It depends on the property and how many tenants there are. You know, if we're buying a building that has five tenants, we're going to talk to every single one of them. Yeah. Um, if we have a building that has 50 tenants, we may will identify near-term role. So anyone that's buying in the next 12 months, and then depending on the, the footprints of the suites, you know, anything, anyone over 5,000 feet or something like that. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, trim that 50 number down to, you know, call it 30 or something like that. Yep. Okay. So we're, we're making our way through due diligence. We're now hard on our money and we are getting to closing. And so we call that kind of onboarding, which, which is happening obviously throughout due diligence, but we're getting to closing. And let's just say today we close on a building at 9 a.m. What, what starts happening on our team now that we own the asset? So for the property management side, we at this point have been working on making sure all of our tenant contact information is as accurate as possible. The minute that we fund and close, we start reaching out to all of those customers introducing ourselves, verifying that they are the best contact, updating any information or system we need to, and then scheduling time to visit the property and informally introduce ourselves. The The COVID era has changed that a little bit. Some customers obviously don't feel comfortable with that, so we respect that. But ideally, we want to get face-to-face with each new customer, start establishing that relationship, and then also meeting vendors on site going and confirming scopes of any service contracts and then just making sure that our welcome letters go out. So we send a series of welcome letters that really details this is how you pay your rent. You can pay it on a portal, our tenant portal system. You can obviously mail a check and also information we need from them, like their certificates of insurance and their certificates of occupancy. So we're it's a full-on blitz. I mean, the minute we're funded, it's it's go time. And one of the things that we like about this asset class and where some of the value is, is it hasn't been as a, it's a fragmented market. It hasn't been professionalized. We're often buying buildings that, not that the previous owners weren't great, but they maybe weren't trying to drive value. They kind of managed it sleepy, just kind of keep it occupied. You find out that they weren't even collecting reimbursables that their leases said they should. And we've really tried to change that and bring kind of a hospitality property management experience. What are, do, do you have any experiences where just us taking over tenants are just like, even with little things that maybe we take for granted, they're just like delighted that like, oh my gosh, we know our property manager. Do you, are you running into that a lot? Literally, you know, almost every acquisition, 
we we hear some positive feedback like yeah. that. A great example, 1170 building we just recently purchased needed some foundation work and the previous owner obviously had put it off and we closed and a week later, foundation crew is out there installing piers. They're on site today as we speak. And that, that particular asset has three tenants and all three have commented to the property manager, oh my gosh, thank you guys so much. Yep. This is amazing. Yep. And that property also had a ton of roof leaks. Uh, the day after closing, our roofer was out there repairing all of the leaks and they were just ecstatic. So you get immediate value for them, but we get immediate gratification knowing that, hey, we're, we're doing the right thing here. Yep. What does day one look like for you when, when we close? We're actually closing something today. Yeah. So <laughs> on the asset management side, it's more the five days before closing. Okay. Or call it seven, where we get really busy. We're reaching out to the buyer or seller, excuse me, and uh, we're getting an updated accounts receivable report. We're getting a security deposit ledger, any outstanding utility bills, basically everything. And we'll work directly with them to finalize prorations for our closing statement. That just cuts down back and forth between title. You know, if I disagree with something they're sending in, if you work it out with with the seller directly, you, you get things squared away a lot faster. Yep. And then previous, you know, prior to that, in those days where talking with Steve, property management, we're awarding contracts for the work we've decided to go ahead and cut loose and do. So day one really is for asset management, it's like, hey, we're there. <laughs> yeah. So, and then then kind of that quarterbacking begins and just monitoring the projects. We've, uh, we cut loose our leasing team, you know, a couple, uh, basically a month before we've identified who's gonna lease the property for us, sign the leasing agreement, marketing materials rolled out, really just making sure that everything is cut loose. And and maybe we skipped over that a little bit. It's, it kind of falls in onboarding, but as it relates to the leasing team, you said that we have identified who our leasing brokers are going to be before closing. How do you run that process? Obviously, sometimes we hire the company that brought us the deal, but if that's not the case, how do you determine who's going to lease our assets and feel confident that they're the ones to do it? Yeah, so we have a lot of great relationships in DFW and in Houston where we where we have assets. So we'll obviously talk to our existing relationships, but we kind of run more like an institution. We go out and we talk to at least three groups. We drive the area when we're in the tenant interviews. We see who's active in the area, who has a lot of listings, because you don't want to select a group that you know has one 500 square foot vacancy down the street and all their other stuff is 20 miles away or something like that. So you work through that, walk the building with them if possible, get their thoughts and feedback, see if if kind of their thoughts align with our thoughts and our underwriting and business plan. And, you know, a lot of times it's beneficial because, you know, they'll see something that no one else on our team saw or something like that. So it's really just kind of a interview, if you will, and identifying who we think is is going to be the best option uh, for this asset class. And then once we've bought it, and obviously we don't have in-house leasing, we sign contracts with market experts in those. What is our kind of process for how we continue the relationship with leasing brokers once we have acquired it? What's our cadence of communicating? What do we expect? What do we do with the information we get? Yeah. So again, depends on the asset. You know, we have assets where we have 60 suites, you know, and constant renewals, constant vacancy, something like that. We're talking to those guys weekly. Most of the time, more than once a week, we'll have standard leasing calls where they submit their leasing report, which we actually upload into our uh, FOS system and uh, where everyone can see what's going on. Steve, property management can see what's going on um, at all times. So we we're talking to them constantly because there's always a deal working. You know, they'll pick up the phone because time kills deals, right? You yep. don't want to wait like, oh, well, I only talk to you on Fridays. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so constantly talking to them, bigger, bigger properties where there's bigger suites or maybe one vacancy, you'd probably stick to your one weekly or biweekly call. Yep. So it really just varies on the property, what's going on. But you absolutely always want to be talking to your brokers, even if it's just to check in. Say, hey, just be top of mind with those guys. And they appreciate that too. So, And kind of two questions off of that. So you were getting on these calls with them weekly, especially let's take that 60 tenant portfolio buildings. You're always having a renewal. You might be having a vacancy. 
you're talking to them about, you know, who are the tours, who's coming vacant, who's renewing. If uh, I want to talk a little bit about what happens when somebody, when the leasing broker calls and says, you know, this tenant is not going to be renewing. How often do you usually know that? And then I want to just talk a little bit about how that information flows through asset management to property management, and that triggers a lot for property management to start working on so we're proactive. Yeah, so we know usually at a minimum three months in advance, just because, again, we're constantly talking to our brokers. We send them updated rent rolls every month, so they have the latest and greatest we involve them, you know, Steve and I will go and meet brokers out and walk suites that we're going to make ready. Like, hey, you know, you think if we put new paint and carpet in here and LEDs, you think this would lease quick? Uh, usually the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, just we like to involve our brokers because they truly are our partners. But that being said, to answer your question, we have them push tenants, not a bad way, but, you know, we just we want to help them get squared away early, you know, because mm -hmm. if they as small business owners in, in most cases, if if they can get a lease finalized three months before it expires and you're not showing up like 30 days before, like, hey, I need you out. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, they may not even know their lease is expiring. Right? right. So we just like to be very, very proactive. It helps us. It helps the tenants. And then if they aren't renewing, we have biweekly meetings with uh, property management and asset management. And obviously, again, being being vertical, you know, we can always call somebody, shoot an email or a case or something like that. So yeah. as soon as we find out someone's vacating or someone's wanting to renew, you know, it's pretty much seamless. So uh, those that, that leasing report goes into FOS. There's going to be a vacancy in 90 days. What does that mean to you, Steve? Yeah. So in our meeting, that's one of the things we'll look at is I'll pull the report and see, okay, upcoming vacancies, 90 days out, 60 days out, and confirm with asset management, hey, are these folks rolling? Yes, they are. Okay. At that point, if we do have a, a make-ready plan, that's already been communicated. It's in our uh, FOS system as well. Hey, we're planning on doing X, Y, and Z, so I can proactively start bidding that work out. That way, ideally, the minute that tenant has moved out, we're in the space the next day, ready to go. Yep. So it's a faster turnaround time. We can lease it back faster. And like Corey said, it it, it really is seamless. I, I think we do a, a really good job like intercommunicating. Yep. It's the same thing as taking over a property and executing. It's just taking over a space and executing right. day one. I can't express the benefit of that communication. Like Steve said, day one at Tenants Out because our property manager is doing the move out walk contractors are walking in right behind them yeah that that literally you know you traditionally been on the space you underwrite three to six months and we still do just to be conservative yeah. but i would confidently shave a month off yeah just because getting it made ready not leaving so much up to the imagination of tenants when they're walking through a kind of dingy space that somebody was in for five years yep. it makes a huge difference yep i mean um, that's that's one of our value adds we buy properties that owners have left vacant for and then we fix it up and it leases immediately. The only other question I have there is, you said we know 90 days in advance. Is that a requirement per a lot of our leases? And do we ever run into a situation where 90 days out, somebody says we're vacating, then 30 days out, no, we're not, or 90 days out, they say we're renewing. And then when it comes time to renewal, 30 days out, they're like, never mind, we're not. It depends on the lease, larger spaces, usually requires six months. So a lot, of, a lot of the times when you negotiate these leases with, you know, call it 50,000 plus, even 25,000 square foot spaces, just depending on what impact that space has on your occupancy at that property, mm -hmm. you'll usually bake in a renewal option. And part of that renewal option in the lease, the tenant has to let you know six months in advance yep. that if they want to renew, so you can start working through that or if they're going to leave. Yep. So, you know, and then smaller tenants, we get the three months and just work with your brokers and kind of beat them down. All of them have at least a 30-day caveat. Yep. So, and again, if you're proactive with your tenants and your brokers, you're going to know right. if they're moving out. Worst case scenario, this time of year right now, holidays, it's tough for anyone to move out. We'll have a lot of people that have given us proper notice, but they'll come back and say, hey, can I have through January 15th and don't charge me holdover. Yeah. So we work with tenants as a case by case basis, but for the most part, you you know, 
if if they're moving out or or not. And we've talked a little bit about obviously great communication rapport with leasing agents. We've talked about taking vacancies that maybe a prior owner has just let sit with, you know, trashing them and they're not really showable and going ahead and being proactive and getting them kind of show ready and fixing them up. One of the things I get asked a lot from um, investors, when, especially when we're buying a property where some of the value add is lease up, and they say, well, why do you think you're going to be able to lease it when the prior owner couldn't? And I think we've already hit on a lot of it, but why are we able to lease when prior owners can't? I think a lot of properties we buy specifically, owners may have owned the building for a long time. They don't have a lot of debt on it. They don't want to invest any more capital on it. They have very low basis, if you will. So a lot of times it doesn't make sense for them to spend money on it. You know, they can have it 60% occupied. And as long as that 60% is paying rent, that thing's still cash flowing for them, right? right. And just activity with, with their brokers. Sometimes it is a broker problem. Like I said, sometimes maybe they, their broker, that's their only listing and everything else is 20 miles away. So they're not spending a lot of time on it. So I would just say that we come in well-capitalized with well-defined business plan to get those spaces leased. Yep. And again, it's just, it really does make a difference like having the capital to, and we just bought a building that needed a paint job and and striping. And I mean, just the, the curb appeal factor, Yeah, you know, when you're not leaving things up to tenants' imaginations, it's a lot easier to lease things. Yeah, I love it. One of the reasons we love Class B Industrial is kind of the predictability of one CapEx, you know, your roof is your biggest risk. And then the things that we do for curb appeal are paint, stripes, landscaping, relatively easy stuff. But the, the one of the most interesting is the TI. When you're in Class A office or you're in retail, you know, you might underwrite something with $30, $40 TI to come find out, you know, the CEO wants a platinum toilet and, you know, they want a shower and they want, you know, all this stuff. And TI is literally creating destruction for a lot of these owners. When in what we do, it's really kind of easy to predict TI, especially inside the space, paint, carpet, it usually stays within one to $3 a foot. I guess my question is, when we're coming up with our plans, is it usually the same? I mean, no matter what building we're buying or where, we are kind of underwriting like a paint and carpet TI package. And do we often ever run into, man, we said it was going to be $3, but this tenant wants, you know, $6 or $10, or does it stay pretty consistent across the portfolio? Yeah. So it's pretty consistent across the portfolio. We do a good job of communicating with that broker or directly with that tenant and, and letting them know that, hey, it's a standard Fort Capital approved or FCP management approved carpet and we have samples. And and most of the time, this tenant base, not just super concerned about the color of their carpet, you know, white walls are fine. It's, the, it's, it's new carpet. They're happy about that. So you don't get just a whole lot of super picky folks. Yep. Every now and then it'll creep up to five bucks a foot or so if there's, you know, hey, we got to do some electrical work. And we also discovered that there's a plumbing issue here. But yeah, if we're talking carpet paint, yeah, all day long, three bucks. And is anybody ever putting money into the the warehouse space besides just like cleanup? Like are, are most of the dollars going into the office space? Mixed bag. And I'll, I'll say when it does get, you know, over the one to three dollars a foot with those tenants <laughs> that are wanting more, they're wanting LEDs in their warehouse. They're wanting to white box the warehouse. We had a... Uh, an agency that signed a lease with us that, Steve, I forget the name of it, but it's it's like a picture wall because they do design and studio in their warehouse. So we had to build that out. So that obviously elevates your cost. And when we're negotiating the lease, we're happy to do that. And we're usually capitalized to do that. However, yeah. their rate is going to increase. And when you do a specialized build out like that or something, you're going to increase the term. For sure. All right. So we've covered kind of TI, we've covered kind of onboarding and what happens a little more maybe in the asset management world. You know, we've talked about quarterly reforecasting. We've talked about, you know, if if the business plan's going to, to par or we're exceeding it, we're kind of continuing to improvise on what the business plan is. What does the reforecasting process look like for you and why is it valuable, not just for property management and construction, but just for the team as a whole? Yeah. So at the at the end of each quarter, once we get the the quarter end months financials, um, we start 
updating our Argus files and Excel models, which, you know, put in new leases. You know, if somebody rolled, you put that in, adjust. You know, I think that suite's going to be vacant for for three months. Adjust your CapEx budget, what you think you're going to spend. So that all rolls up into our quarterly reporting, which we send out to investors and kind of shows you what our current IRR, what our current profits, our current multiple is going to be. Super valuable. We go in to a quarter-end deal review once all the models are finalized. And we analyze what the past three months have done for the asset. And we have some triggers that say, you know, and we obviously have all the loan covenants and everything built in there, but, you know, it makes sense. We can refi this now. You know, we've increased the value by 20% on this asset in the past six months. So a lot of times in the, the quarter windows, there might not be something, but it compounds. So that's why it's super important for us to update it on a quarterly basis and look at a quarter over quarter, year over year, um, aspect. So we know where we're at. We know that we could go to our lender and confidently get a higher appraisal to refi or something like that. So really just your all around decision making, mm-hmm. have a better understanding of what that asset looks like, what a refi does to that asset's cash flow. Like what if we leverage it up to 75% and, uh, and take out a good bit of equity, you know, does, uh, does the two vacancies coming up in six months, does that hurt our cash flow where we may not be able to cover the new debt service? Right. So it seems like little things, but it gives you a full picture to where you can make a much, much better decision for ourselves and our investors. And one other kind of quick question on, as it relates to some of our smaller suites, call it the five to 10,000. Obviously, everybody's worried about the bottom dollar. What are they spending? I think the larger your space gets, the more impactful that is. For our smaller tenants, like what are the most, obviously price, but like it's such a, you know, you take a building that or a space that's 5,000 feet, you're charging them five bucks a foot, that's 25,000 a year. It's like, what is that? 20, call it 2,000 a month. And we're starting to see rent growth at not just two, 3%, but 10, 15% rent bumps. Is that a function of one, just low vacancy in the market? And is it like cost prohibitive for tenants to really consider moving just to save like a hundred bucks a month in rent? Like it's almost like the cost of the move is gonna wipe away any savings that you had. Yeah, all of all of the above. Um, and then I'll also say location. You know, yeah. if, a, if a business has been there for 15 years, they're not gonna up and move. You know, their their clients know where they're at. They've yep. been there for a long time. So and we work with tenants, obviously, you know, our, we actually have a lot of success because, you know, they've been there for 10 years paying a lower rate, but hey, we've painted the outside, restriped the parking lot. Your clients are going to have a better experience. Your customers are going to have a better experience. By the way, on this renewal, not only are you getting better exterior, we'll give you a little bit of TI, you yeah. know, we'll replace your lobby carpet, put you a, a new coat of paint on. So it goes a long way. But yeah, all, all of the above are major factors. Steve, we we often talk about, you know, you buy that property with 60 tenants. A lot of the value is, you know, renewing tenants early, getting tenants out and bringing in new tenants. What is the difference for you, maybe as it relates to those early days where there's lots of activity, kind of getting things stabilized versus maybe a stabilized asset? Like how does, how do things start to kind of, you know, calm down for you as we move through those phases? Yeah, good question. So there's a particular asset comes to mind in, in Irving that we have that it initially when we're, when we're, we've got a lot of move outs and move ins, it's a lot of time because that property manager needs to be there. He's walking them, whether it be move in or move out. And then also typically when we have a new tenant, ton of new questions, making sure they're getting established as far as where to, you know, how to pay the rent and how what work orders and things like that. So the, the time commitment obviously is there. Once it's stabilized and we've, by that time, we've built that relationship. That's the biggest thing on our end is, is the actual relationship with that tenant. You know, the biggest compliment we can get is, hey, we're renewing because we love our property manager. Right. You know, obviously the location works and the space works, but all things being equal, you guys have been great. So that's a massive compliment to us. But our property management team wants the area is stabilized um, or the the tenant base is stabilized, we can basically just focus on the day-to-day, oh, this popped up, okay, great, but it's not a 
it's not a 30% of my day type thing. Right. Yeah. Yep. Okay. So we've owned an asset for a year and let's just call it stabilized property management. Well, I'm, I'm 99% sure that's how it happens, but property management creates a budget for the next year. I'm assuming they're also working with asset management. It's it's in tandem. How do you guys think about creating that budget for the year, assuming that the year before was kind of lumpy because there was lots of, you know, CapEx and there's lots of tenants moving in and out? How do we know how to set the budget for the next year? Yeah, it's definitely a collaborative effort. So we look at, obviously, the data that we do have on the previous year, try to find any anomalies that we know that we can assume won't happen again for the following year. And then there's some assumptions that are made, obviously. And, you know, taking a look at the the leases and the rent bumps and things like that, making sure those are in and then getting with the asset management team and really kind of talking about, all right, what do what taxes look like? What do utilities look like? Do we think there's going to be an increase? And then they will take those budgets, review them, and then they'll provide us notes. Uh, and then we'll go in and make those edits and then we'll do kind of a final review. And then once they're all blessed, then we'll save them on our, our, our FOS system. And how, due to our scale and the amount of properties that we own and that everything's in-house, how valuable is it that, you know, we have this constant data off of all our assets and creating these budgets now, you're not as much, I wouldn't say we were guessing before, you just have a lot more to make sure you're right. Has it been a, a huge improvement as we've grown and brought things in-house? Huge improvement, not only for underwriting new acquisitions, how much certain things will cost or you know, what kind of rent bumps you think you can get in this area. But yeah, just overall, huge, huge help on on the underwriting of the acquisitions, the new underwriting. You know, we can look at it when we're going to do budgets or re-underwrite a deal. We can look at properties in a big area and be like, oh, you know what? Taxes in that area have increased 10% year yeah. over year. So, or if you just had one property and it wasn't a centralized data point, if you will, you may not be able to identify that as easily. Yep. So really just the the power of being able to look at all these assets and getting granular onto the into the areas that those assets are in are tremendous help. What do, what do our lenders require from us throughout the year as it relates to maybe each team? Do they require like our annual budget? Do they make a, do they have to confirm leases? Like what what do we owe our lenders each year as it relates to your world? Depends on the lender and the deal. There's a lot of those answers today. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Monthly financials, we have to send those over. Obviously, the asset management team, we handle draws, CapEx draws. We'll work with property management. They'll get us the invoices once things are paid or need to be paid. We'll package those, update the budget, send that to the lender. So we're working with them on on funding funding draws and, and paying for the CapEx work and TI and leasing commissions that we're doing. So Working with them on that, again, monthly financials, they do require, almost all of them require our annual budgets. Um, Those are usually due like November 15th. So um, you want to get a head start on your budgets, um, which again, being in-house, more accountability, it tends to get done a lot faster and you know know what's going on or you know what the delay is. And most of the time they're not working on a, a different client or something. So if we take a CapEx plan, Obviously, we've agreed to it. Let's say it's 150000 to paint, do striping, landscaping, maybe some monument signage. Obviously, Steve and Corey, y'all have both signed off on that. Steve, you're in charge of actually executing that plan happening. And then you're collecting the invoices, bundling them up, putting them, I guess, in a form that gets, the, is it the draw, the draw request form? And then that's going to you to submit to the bank, Corey? Yeah, so they send over the the packaged invoices, and then asset management team will actually fill out the the budget. You Got know, it. This invoice is TI. This invoice is the ten thousand of the fifty thousand in landscaping we're going to do. So we actually allocate those funds, and then usually we do a really good. Steve does a really good job of uh, of finding us savings in all of those areas. So that enables us to reallocate funds. Usually we. We dump them in TI and leasing commissions. And that also enables us, like we were talking about earlier, where a tenant may want $8 a foot, but we didn't really budget it. But we've had savings in other areas where we can reallocate those funds to get a better tenant in, have a nicer space. That's probably, if they roll, that we'll be able to release and yeah, just better experience all around for them. Steve, your background, you've built hundreds, if not thousands of homes, 
You were a leadership coach at David Weekly Homes. You were very influential in building homes. And uh, there's probably, this is my own opinion, there, there's no tougher job than building a home for somebody. It's a constant battle throughout nine months. Um, how have you taken a lot of your experience as you've built out property management to think about how we can do things differently than your typical property manager that you hire? Yeah, great question. I think the biggest thing that I try to instill in everyone on our team is a proactive mindset. And I think that can be cliche. I think if you talk to any property management group in America, what they're, oh, we're proactive. And, and, <laughs> and they could be, but really proactive beyond just, hey, we do inspections every week. That's yeah. great. But how are we proactive with the tenants? How are we proactive with the vendors? We've got a service contract coming up that's going to expire in February. Why don't we try to renegotiate it now? We know we've got a tenant that, you know, is needs to think about a renewal in the next six months. Hey, next time we're out there, maybe let's ask them, hey, how's the space working out for you? You know, maybe get some intel so we can relay to asset management. And then also just sense of urgency in everything we do. So yeah. we want to have a SWAT team type mentality on everything from, hey, I think my plug's not working to I've got a massive roof leak. We, we cannot have our tenants waiting around and, oh, you know, he's going to call me back on Monday. It's we, we've got to attack everything with a high sense of urgency. And what's your, I don't know if it's an acronym, it's like 224 or? Yeah, so 224-7 is um, a thing we've instituted. It's an internal goal. So we don't communicate this directly to the tenants just for expectation setting. But our internal expectations are 224-7, meaning we're going to contact that tenant within two hours of receiving their work order. We're going to put eyes on it or have a vendor put eyes on it within 24 hours of receiving the work order. And then that work order is going to be closed and taken care of in seven days or less. Is, are the majority of you know, tenant inquiries or complaints more around you know something's broken in our space or is it the neighbor next door is loud and we hate them or like, what's your majority of your your calls about? I would say probably 90% are, it's uh, something's leaking. Most oftentimes uh, we've got a roof leak or it's a comfort complaint. It's too hot, it's too cold, AC's not working. Most of the time, most of our leases, those are triple net leases, that customer is responsible for their AC anyway. Sometimes we have to remind them of that and maybe show them in their lease where it says that they're responsible for it. Hey guys, can I see your your maintenance contract that you're supposed to have on these HVAC units? Mm -hmm. uh, oh, we, we forgot to do that. Okay, well, you know, we may want to get on that. And can you send us a copy of it once you get executed? So that way this doesn't happen again. So a lot of, lot of education, not, not so much, hey, let's go send our HVAC guy out there and spend the money. You know, we want to be a nice property management company, but we also, you know. And as you think about just kind of vendor management, obviously we can respond to the tenant quickly, but we have to have subs and vendors that'll show up and do the work. Maybe just a, just a little bit about how you think about having great subs that'll mm -hmm. show up on time, do quality work, and how our scale and our size has continued to help deepen those relationships. Yeah, absolutely. So I think a any property manager's best friend is a good vendor slash subcontractor. They can literally save you so much time because you've got people that you can depend on. As we've grown, obviously our leverage is increasing. So we can get those sort of bulk buy discounts, you know, with a, a landscaper. Hey, you know, when I first met you, you were, you had a service contract on two of our buildings. Now you've got a service contract on eight of our buildings. So let's talk about what that price looks like now. Yep. And we're continuing to buy assets. A lot of times, with vendors and contractors, it's really good, especially the ones you have a good relationship with, it's really good to sort of let them know what we're forecasting for 2021. Hey guys, just so you know, we're planning on buying $100 million of real estate next year, $150 million, and we're going to need some help. We're going to need you guys. Yep. So be thinking about, are you guys staffed up? Are yep. you, can you handle more work? The relationship with that, that vendor slash contractor, the best thing we can do is pay them on time. Right. That, I mean, there's no quicker way to make a best friend out of a vendor or have a great relationship as paying quickly. Yep. If you pay on time, they will follow you anywhere. Yep. I love it. And, and, and the same to be said about the scale of our portfolios that relates to hiring uh, great leasing agents. Often these properties, you know, you have a five and 10,000 square foot space that leases for five bucks a foot. These are not 
you know, life-changing commissions. It can be tough to find great leasing brokers that want to work on something like that. Corey, can you just, I, I think we, we know the answer, but how does having a large portfolio help us get great leasing agents that might not otherwise lease a property like that to get them to lease it? Yeah, just scale. Um, yeah. Obviously, if you have, you know, 200, 5,000 square foot units to lease and you're doing two or three year leases, you know, their commission isn't uh, that great on that one. But, you know, if you're doing 50 of them in a year, it really adds up versus, you know, oh, well, I've only got 10 of these. Right. I'm going to go focus on somebody else's stuff. Yep. All right. A couple more topics and then we'll bring it home. I want to talk a little bit just about FOS and that is our operating system. We won't necessarily get into you know, all the nuances of how it works, but the one of the general huge points of why we use it is it allows our team to work individually to input the data and their workflow and things that they're working on. But we've now built it to where that's extracted into dashboards that can be transparent. And so I just want to talk a little bit about some of the transparency that we have created. So I'll just pick a couple of the dashboards that we've built and maybe just a little uh, discussion of how that impacts you and your team because lots of dashboards um, aren't just for one team. Multiple teams are looking at them. So if we, we talked about the leasing activity dashboard, what does that mean to you, Corey? And Steve, what does that mean to you? Well, for me, it, it's... Uh... And, and and what is leasing activity showing? Paint a picture of what that dashboard tells you. Sure. So every every brokerage firm has their own you know, Excel sheet where it's a, a, a leasing update, shows the tours, you know, shows which group was interested, um, and usually has some notes on you know what their other options are, how far along they are. So we've uniformed a leasing template for all of our third party brokerage firms, and that now. They send it in and it uploads into our system for the whole company to see. And at any given time, I can open up the dashboard and rather than kind of sorting through my emails or having to reach out and I can't get in touch with somebody, it's all right there um, in front of me. I can see, you know, when this update was made, which space that tenant was looking for, you know, who they were represented by, do they like the space? Are we, are we their number one option? You know, just general leasing updates. So I constantly know what's going on. Also on top of that, um, we've added a feature more for internal use, kind of like our make ready plan. So, you know, we're obviously talking about it at all times, but you know, you get a lot of these projects going, Steve can bring it up and say like, oh, you know, this tenant's rolling. Corey's already gone in there and said, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna white box this warehouse. Um, so he can have it on his radar well in advance. Like I said, usually at least 90 days yep. in advance when we, confirm that the tenant's rolling or something. Yeah. And the notes that they're putting in, obviously I can pull them up very quickly and see, oh, wow, it looks like we're close on three that, that, that may sign next month. Okay, great. Next asset management meeting. How are we looking on these three? Yep. They should get fully executed leases tomorrow. Awesome. Yep. And then we can start putting them in our system. We also have that feature that shows it's like all of our properties rolled up. It shows month by month. And then you can see six months out, we have 15 leases expiring mm -hmm. that month. Yeah. It allows asset management, one, to engage with brokers to make sure they're renewing or not. But it gives you the ability, you know, assuming Corey and the asset management team went on a year-long vacation, you could just look at it and immediately go, we at least have 15 leases we need to be talking about now. Yeah, it's, yep. it's huge for asset management. It's just so convenient because rather than going through 40 rent rolls, I literally, to see what my expirations in Q1 of 2021 are going to be, I literally can open up that dashboard, all of our properties are linked to it and consolidated. And I can see every expiration across our portfolio immediately without having to go through so many different files. Yep. All right. We're going to do one more kind of topic and then we will we'll bring it home. Let's just take Merrick Park. It's a deal that, and, and we can get through this relatively quickly, but it's a deal that we did a, a few months ago. And let's just talk about just that whole process of the day we put it under contract. And I think we've now owned it probably 90 days where we stand today and what's all been done and how the sausage was made uh, between y'all's two teams. 
Yeah. So once we obviously learned we've got um, LOI, so we first thing I do is, okay, I need to go put eyes on this property, drive out there, take a look at it. This particular property really needed a paint job. I mean, it was just, it had not been painted uh, for decades and parking lot was in pretty rough shape. And there were quite a few concrete areas like curbs and just sidewalks, life safety issues, slip, trip and fall uh, hazards, things like that. So very kind of easily, I quickly identified uh, these are the items that need to be on this CapEx plan. And then as we're going through due diligence, go ahead and start getting bids on all of these items with the assumption that we're going to close on this date. And by the time we've closed, we've vetted all of the bids, we've selected the contractor, we've awarded the contract. And I think the paint crew was out there, I want to say a week after closing. And we got that done. We got that building painted in about three weeks. And while they were doing that, um, we had the concrete contractor out there fixing all the areas that were uh, potential hazards, uh, repairing curbs, fixing some parking lot issues, and then getting it striped. So between the time, the day of closing and all of the CapEx items being completed, we were probably 35, 45 days and it was done. So you had a group of tenants that have been leasing these spaces for years. Some of them been there years and they've seen no activity on the CapEx front. And we came in and did all that right away. So we we immediately became their raving fans and vice versa uh, because we we were able to to get it done so quickly. And so we, because we're vertical, we have great transparency and a game plan in due diligence pre-closing. We have uh, scale. We have great relationships with vendors that'll get to work immediately and can complete the job quickly and give us a great price that we can pass off to, which ultimately increases the bottom line. How would that have just been differently had we done it with a third-party group? You know, and Corey can chime in as well. I think in my opinion, I think obviously the speed at which it happens just is is completely different. It, yeah. it, it would still happen, obviously. There's great third-party property management groups out there that do this every day. Yeah. But there are so many levels of red tape and bureaucracy and we've got to get this approved and let's go back and where with with us it's internal i literally walk in Corey's office and go hey we're engaging painters on monday are we still good yeah. okay great yeah you know yeah i'd second that the, the speed is is everything especially for this particular asset so uh, going back to the data we had owned some properties in the area had our underwriting you know we're going to start flipping people to triple net leases at 725 a foot. We looked at the other properties that we owned in the area and just kind of announced this in the, this location. We were like, you know what? We can push this to 750. So we did that and was successful. And literally within the first month of owning the asset, Steve had completed all of the, the curb appeal work, like you just said. And we were, call it 87% occupied. Yeah. With that curb appeal factor, I mean, we started talking to our brokers and negotiating leases. We're now 97% occupied and we're signing leases at 775 a foot. Wow. Um, which is, I mean, that's a major needle mover on a property like this. So again, we probably would have found out that we could push rates to 775. It would have just been, you know, probably late Q1 2020 yeah. or 2021 instead of, you know, last month. So the quicker you're done, the quicker you can lease up, the quicker you're done, those, those tenants that are rolling when they're making that decision of whether to renew or not, if it's done, they might've been leaving, now they're staying. So the speed's everything. One other question on that, um, do you do we tell our tenants during DD and before we've closed that we are gonna be doing this stuff to the building or do, do they not find out till we close? Uh, usually not until we close. Most PSAs kind of limit us to, you know, 10 interviews and we'll have kind of a set list of, are you renewing, are you happy? Is there any structural problems that we don't know about? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Those kinds of things. So uh, our interaction with tenants are, are, is very limited, you know, legally has to be limited uh, prior to us taking over. And then one more question. We get through the first 90 days. We've executed quickly. We're now 97% leased. We're, we're leasing for more than we thought we could. We were at 725, then 750. Now we're at 775. So we're at, we're at our first 90 days. We're going to start doing our first reforecast. 
just as, a, as, as asset management and, and property management construction, how do you now think about the next nine, like nine months? Like how does what happened in the first 90 days maybe change? Um, obviously we're going to be able to push rates and set a new level, but is, is there anything else that comes to mind and uh, how things would change? Yeah. So this, for this particular asset, I mean, it really condenses our business plan. You know, we're ex- executing at a much faster rate. So we've taken care of the vacancy. We've pushed rates. We've proven that there's demand for these spaces, mm-hmm. um, even at that rate. So now, you know, we'll start going to current tenants, working through early renewals if possible. And for tenants that are rolling, you know, we know for a fact we can kind of be aggressive, more aggressive than maybe you uh, would have originally been just to mitigate roll. Um, now you can truly like, hey, we're pushing 775 a foot here. Yeah. And here's why we know we can get this and we hope you stay. All right. Last question, Steve, we launched, we decided to get into property management last September. We said that we would spend seven months preparing, building a team, getting onboarded to Yardi, and we were going to launch April 1st, which was a great time to launch anything. (laughs) (laughs) I guess my one question would just be, what are, is there something that comes to mind already like an improvement that we've made or a failure that we had that we learned from even in our first nine months that, you know, we've already, like, what are some things that stand out as things that we've done way better nine months later than even when we started? Yeah. So the first thing that comes to mind is I think we underestimated the time that it takes to do a lot of things, onboarding a property that you start kind of peeling the onion on that. And there's so many layers And then when you just simply think about it, oh, onboarding the property, yeah, we need to get that into the system. Okay, great. Well, there's about 400 other things we have to do. Underestimating the time that it takes to really truly get to know the asset from a property management perspective. When we buy a new asset and we visit the property multiple times and we, we talk to the tenants, but there's still maybe skeletons in that building's closet that, that may not show their ugly face for a year. And so I think now, knowing that, we've established policies and procedures to adapt to that. Okay, yeah. we know that when we're buying this building, we can't just allow ourselves a couple days to get this stuff done. This is going to take weeks. So I think that's that's the biggest thing. Yep. So pre- preparation. Yeah. Corey, you were in asset management before even coming to Fort, been here over a year now. What's maybe something that comes to mind is some of like breakthroughs that we've made in asset management as it relates to maybe where we were when you started to where we are now or how we compared to previous companies you've worked at? Like what what's things stand out that have been huge improvements for us? Yeah. So uh, the quarterly underwriting, massive, um, just in our day-to-day asset management, our decision-making, you know, annual business plans when we're doing the budgets, things like that. I mean, just tremendous, tremendous help. Um, we've also used, utilized FOS, where we have a, a, a cash recon, if you will, um, which feeds into our distribution process. And we have several hurdles to kind of get to, you know, what our target distribution is every month, where used to kind of be like, yeah, this kind of feels right. So that's very uniform, very formalized. We can communicate that to our investors, you know, like, hey, for the... 2021 every month you can expect to we're going to distribute this which is massive our uh the loan loan tracking dashboard is is huge as well really more helpful for asset management (laughs) just because at any moment when you know updating underwriting or wondering if if we might be tight on a dscr or something like that it's just kind of all at at your fingertips so it really in the past year and a half i've been here it's like we brought all the good things from an institutional side, yeah, but kept it small business enough to where we can execute extremely fast, yeah, and still make institutional level decisions. I love it. All right, Steve and Corey, thank you so much for joining me today. If you liked what you listened to today, we are really going to focus in 2021 on doing more episodes about how we do things. And so, if there's something that you would like to know more about, Give us an email, thefortpodcast at gmail.com, and we would love to create an episode to answer some of those questions. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you.
everyone. It's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Ford Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Ford Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.